We've been discussing a group of believers who believed they had it all. They were more gifted than anyone else. They were more knowledgeable than anyone else. They were more free than any other church. But the great Apostle Paul wrote them a strong warning letter. In chapter 8, verses 7 and following, he pointed out a totally different perspective on life than the I-did-it-my-way attitude. Dave Wurtson continues to expose us to this strange perspective that is so contrary to the contemporary captivation with self. Last week we began trying to get across what I think is the heartbeat of 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian problem is that they had a lot of knowledge in their heads, but they didn't have a lot of love in their hearts. They were very concerned about theology. They were not nearly as concerned about getting along together as a family. You all know 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's probably one of the high points of the revelation of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of those chapters that you often hear it being read. It's easy to isolate a portion of Scripture like that. And that's why we try to begin at the beginning of the book and work through the end because it puts these diamonds in its proper setting. 1 Corinthians 13 is like the culmination of the book of 1 Corinthians. Everything's leading up to that very strategic passage about what love genuinely is. And 1 Corinthians 8, you might say, is the small opening of that crescendo as Paul, as a skillful author, begins to write this letter and open it wide so that you'll focus and you'll hear clearly the heartbeat of the entire Christian life, which is love acts patiently, love acts kindly. In 1 Corinthians 8, he talks, first of all, about this priority of love. And we saw that there's a tremendous threat that knowledge puts against us to cause us to become prideful. That causes us to think that we know more than we do. We become blind. And then Paul focused our attention on the fact that we're to build one another up, not become puffed up. Then we looked at the orthodox theology of the Corinthians about the question of idolatry. And Paul was not putting them down. He was not saying that they didn't have inaccurate information. In actuality, they did have accurate information. There is only one God. We looked at some Old Testament scriptures that highlighted that truth. There is only one God. Therefore, an idol is nothing. Therefore, food sacrificed to idols is the same as any other food. Conclusion, God created all things. Jesus is Lord of all things. Eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, all that just fits together. It's very logical. It's very clear. If you understand it, it all makes sense. There's only one problem. Is it forgot the fact that we don't live in an isolated world, but we're always in relationship with people? In other words, it's true. Idols are nothing. Idols are make-believe. They're myths. There's no such thing as Zeus or as Horus, or the other gods of the ancient world, the Hindu gods that are worshipped today. In reality, they're just names that are taught by men. In chapter 10, we'll learn that there is a demonic, supernatural, evil structure underneath all that idolatry. But it is true that the idols in themselves are nothing. And so the Corinthian arguments seem to be very spiritual. If there's only one God, there's only one Lord, if the idols are nothing, then who cares what you eat? Now, Paul has a very delicate thing to try to put together in this regard because Paul is for freedom. 
Paul is the apostle of freedom. He doesn't want you to be hung up about what you eat or hung up about what you wear or hung up about what you drink or hung up about which days you worship on. Paul is a man that calls for freedom. But he's also a man that's very concerned that we not hurt one another. And he lives his life aware of the fact that there can be someone with a delicate conscience. There can be someone that just came out of a background of idolatry. That for years when they went to an idolatrous temple and they sacrificed those idols, they believed with all their hearts that the idol would help them. That there was a God behind that idolatrous system. And after they came to know the Lord, they couldn't just shuck off maybe 15, 20, 25 years of practice. And Paul is very concerned for the Corinthians to ask themselves, is being right enough? Have you considered the way your actions influence somebody else? And that's what we want to look at in verses 7 through 13. Let's read those verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and let's read verses 7 through 13 so we have... Paul's thinking before us. But not everyone knows this. The Corinthian slogan in verse 1 was, we know that we all possess knowledge. Prideful. Paul says in reality, not everyone has this accurate knowledge about God and idolatry in their hearts. Some people are still accustomed to the idols. That when they eat food, such food that's been offered to idols in other words, they think of that food as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and we are no better if we do eat. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Now, we're not handling the issue of meat offered to idols. This is not the problem of the modern church. So what we have to do is to look back at what the problem was in the first century, and we need to try to think about the principles that Paul was trying to get across underneath his teaching to the Corinthians, and then we need to apply it into our interaction together and our interface with our culture. And what Paul is talking about in verses 7 through 13 is that we need to make choices concerning our freedom. And Paul's focus is that the issue in the Christian life is not, I've got my rights. Do you ever feel that way in your life? I want to do what I want to do. I know it's right. I know what I ought to do. It's my life to live. I have the authority to live it the way I want to live it. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Every one of you is made in the image of God. In fact, your choices are so significant that based upon your choices and my choices, we'll spend eternity in heaven or hell. A whole bunch of you ask me, Dave, how could God ever send anybody to hell? How could God ever punish anybody? If God didn't, wasn't willing to have there be a hell, 
and have there be a heaven and let, let you make some choices, then you wouldn't be a person. You see, God could have made this entire audience machinery. You could have all been like computers, garbage in, garbage out, good things in, good things out, and he could have made absolutely no choices. Computers make absolutely no choices at all. The person programming him, the person running the thing makes all kinds of choices. Computers don't make willed choices. There's not morality in a computer. But you're not computers. There's a lot of similarities. Your mind works similarly. But when it comes to human being, you go to someone that's far beyond any piece of machinery. You're a responsible, eternal being. And because of that, God takes you intensely seriously, and you do have the freedom. Paul's writing as an inspired prophet, an apostle, and he doesn't just say, now, Corinthians, you do what I tell you, and that's all there is to it. No. He teaches them. He appeals to them. He talks to them about their rights, but he tries to get them to see a better way. In chapter 10, he's going to tell them point blank, don't eat in the temple, food offered to idols. In chapter 10, we'll find out some reasons why he gives them that command. But very different from a lot of us in training, Paul begins by giving explanations, and then he concludes by giving authoritative pronouncements. Most of us begin with authoritative pronouncements, and then we don't give anything, except because I said so. And what happens is that we get angry and we get rebellious. The Apostle Paul recognizes how important every single one of you are. And he won't take final responsibility for your life in the sense that he'll overpower your will and just mow you down. Instead, he says you do have rights. You do have freedom in Christ. You can eat anything you want to eat. But he says let's think about what our priorities are. In verses 7 through 13, he's saying, you are free, but what are you using your freedom for? Are you using your freedom to tear people down or to build them up? And then he talks about the danger of the uninformed conscience. The person who has a weak conscience, who just came out of a pagan structure, and he talks about their life. He begins, first of all, by saying that not every believer knows the unreality of idols. The Corinthians were wrong in thinking that everybody has this accurate knowledge about idolatry. That everybody knows the idols are nothing. In verse 7, he corrects that false idea and says, no, not everyone knows that. You see, there's little babies in God's family that haven't been given the further teaching about Christ and his priority and who he is. And Paul says to the older Corinthians, you need to be sensitive about that younger believer. You see, you need to be concerned not about your rights and what you have the freedom to do, but you need to have a life that cares very much about these new plants that were just sprouting in God's family. And they need a lot of watering. They need a lot of tender care. You need to be concerned about the young believer that's just getting started in the Christian life that has a delicate conscience about a lot of areas, such as eating meat offered to idols. The second thing Paul brings out is the danger of getting someone to act inconsistent with their conscience. You see, we in our culture tend to take our conscience very lightly. 
We have an idea that our job is to correct the conscience of another and to say, listen, you don't need to be worried about that. You don't need to be upset about that. Go ahead and do it. And so we have a young believer who maybe, like I had some friends illustrated in a modern area where this kind of thing would apply. I had some friends that came out of the drug culture of New York City. One of my very close friends led some of the hippie movements in the 60s, the big sit-in they had in Central Park. And he played the guitar for a living before he came into the Lord, and he went from one New York club to the next. That's what he did. He smoked pot, LSD, played every night in a club. He came to know Christ. Now, when my friend hears certain kinds of rhythms, certain kinds of styles of music, certain kinds of singing, you know what he thinks about? He thinks about drugs. He thinks about drunkenness. He thinks about immorality. He thinks about a very dark, chaotic period of his life. So you know what? Can't enjoy that kind of music. In fact, to be honest with you, he thinks that music is dead wrong. Now, my personal opinion is, based upon the Holy Word of God, that there's no sound that in itself is inherently evil. There's no vibration on a guitar that says, that's the devil's vibration. There's no pattern that's intrinsically evil. There's nothing wrong with playing. Like If you play a seventh and you slide it on the guitar, it's jazz. And in certain settings of life, people can hear that that seventh chord, oh, that's evil. So what's my job? My job is get them all straightened out. Get all these ignorant people that don't realize, listen, sound is just sound. Rhythm is just rhythm. Feel your heart. Pump, ka-pump, ka-pump. That's what Paul's talking about. He said there's people that have weak consciences. Now, the person with a weak conscience is in danger when they see you doing something that goes against their conscience, they go ahead and do it even though in their heart they feel that it's wrong. And Paul is very, very strong about not urging another believer to violate their conscience. Notice what he says. He says in verse 7, Some people are still accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as being sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. And what they're saying is that this person acts inconsistently with their conscience. I want you to think about what sin is. And I want us to think for a minute about how important it is to be sensitive to our conscience. And I want you to recognize that your conscience can be objectively wrong, but subjectively right. Do you understand what I mean by that? Your conscience can be objectively wrong, but subjectively right. Your conscience can tell you as you grow up. Let's suppose that you were born in a home where every time you licked a lollipop, your dad says, no, it's sinful. Get that lollipop out of your mouth. So you grow up thoroughly convinced red lollipops are right from the pit of hell. Anybody raised like that? No, I hope not. But let's suppose you were. So you become a believer. You're 17 years old. You get converted. And you go out with a bunch of believers. And they say, man, let's get some good red lollipops. And man, your heart, you've been raised all your life. Red lollipops are evil. Red lollipops do not bring pleasure to God. 
So all your friends are eating their red lollipops. They're all licking away and everything, and, and they say, hey, have one of those. Then you're faced with a choice. So you say, man, I want to go, go along with everybody. I want to do what they're doing, and I know that it's wrong, but I don't want to ripple any waters. I don't want anybody to laugh at me. So you take one of those red lollipops, and you lick away. Are you sinning? What do you think? Let's take a vote. How many think you're not sinning? How many think that you are sinning? How many don't know? Okay, let me ask you another question. Is there anything wrong objectively? We don't have a, Eddie. Eddie's not here this morning, our dentist in residence over in Mansfield. But Eddie hands out red lollipops to practice going. So he won't mind, okay? Is there anything really objectively wrong with red lollipops? Do you think that when you stand before the great white throne judgment, there will be 46 in the list, sinful actions, red lollipops, licking them in a candy store, right? How many of you think objectively there's really nothing wrong with a red lollipop? Okay, that's what I'm saying. There's really nothing wrong with it. So why do you think there's something wrong with someone that thinks there's something wrong with it going ahead and doing it? That points out something very important. You know what a whole bunch of us are into? A whole bunch of us are into, is this objectively right or wrong? Will God let me do this? Will he not let me do this? Is there a code? It's like a lot of my friends when they were raised. There used to be 13 books, a whole bunch of my friends. They had 13 books and 13 movies they were not supposed to read or see. And those were the things that were wrong. And that's what they wanted someone to tell them. Then they could all go out and do it. It's the way it worked. But what the text is bringing out is that sin has to do with our relationship with God. Do you understand that? You see, if I do something that I believe in my heart is offensive to God, if I feel that it's wrong, I feel that it's a rebellious act against God, then for me to do it is to sin. Because I'm deliberately doing something that I think is harmful to God. And sin is a very personal thing. Not always just an objective thing. Do you understand that? I want you as a believer and I want myself as a believer. We need to become very concerned to have an intimate relationship with God. Now later on in the teaching of God's holy word, you might find out that God could care less about red lollipops. And in the course of that training... You might come to the place in your life where you're totally free to lick away at a red lollipop. But until that time, we must be very careful not to violate another's conscience. The Corinthians didn't care about that. The Corinthians were trying just to say, listen, let me teach you. Let me set you free. You can go ahead and do whatever you want to do. And the Apostle Paul says, no, you can't. Because your intimate relationship with God is very important. It's not just a question of what is objectively right and what is objectively wrong. It's also a question of how does someone feel about their relationship with God and what they're doing. And so Paul warns the Corinthians about the threat of causing someone to act inconsistently with their conscience. Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. A whole lot of you ask me, can I do this, can I not? If it's not of faith, don't do it. 
If you can't do something and feel like this is really glorifying God, Jesus Christ is right here in my life. I'm the temple of Jesus. And so when I go and do this action, Jesus is going to be right there with me. If you can't say, Jesus, isn't this good? Isn't this something that you enjoy? Isn't this something that we can do together? Then don't do it. Don't do it. And don't encourage someone else to do it either. Now, I think a lot of us need to say the word of God very carefully because a whole lot of us think the wrong Jesus is living inside because it's not the objective biblical Jesus, but it's a subjective parent that might have raised us in a lot of crazy ways with a lot of funny scruples. That's very possible. And I want you to learn to separate the true Jesus as revealed in the Bible from some of our religious ideas of what Jesus is like. But the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus, is someone that you will always want in your life, always with you, because he's your loving Savior. And oh, how we need to understand that. There's a part of me that wants to get away from him, and I think that's true of you. There's some of you that say, Jesus, just let me do this. I just want to do it. I know you wouldn't like it too much, but I want to do it anyway. And you get your conscience in a warp. You know, it's not really a faith. You're really not confident that it's right. And I would say that especially to the young teenagers, as you start to grow, there's a tremendous pressure. Go ahead and do it. Ah, that's just what mom and dad are saying. That's just what they say at church. And sometimes you go ahead and do something that in your heart you're not at peace with. And you exercise your freedom, but you violate your conscience. And Paul says that that's a very serious thing to encourage someone to do that. To cause someone to act inconsistent with their conscience is sinful. Therefore, the loving, mature believer will not risk hurting a weaker believer over something as insignificant as eating. Sin is not just a list of things that you shouldn't do. It is an attitude of separation and independence from God. When we do things that we believe the biblical Christ would not approve of, we violate our conscience and we will cause others to stumble. How healthy is your conscience today? This message from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about the weak and the strong conscience and about how we should behave towards others in areas of disagreement is an important subject Do you know a believer who tries to impose their scruples about things on everyone else? Maybe they would listen to this message in private, and the Lord could speak to them. How about a believer who has questions about the freedom we have in Christ versus the list of no's that so many churches impose on others? Please share this message with them. Now, let's rejoin Dave for a concluding thought. You know, the more that I study the New Testament, the more I see an incredible contrast between the answer to the secret of the meaning of life that the New Testament is giving to us and the Old Testament than what is constantly peddled to us by the media and by our high-profile experts in today's world. I, I don't think there has ever been a society that has more insight into the self, more stress upon the self, more appeal to care for the self, more appeal to beautify the self than the present generation that we're living in. And yet you could probably argue that there has probably never been a more unhappy culture, a more disillusioned people 
are more sad people than is in the United States of America today. You know, I think that the reason that's so, and I, I want to share with our Truth Encounter family, I think that happiness is, we've often been taught, like Minerva Meyer has taught us, that happiness is a choice. I really think that happiness is something that that we can't really focus on. I think that happiness is kind of like falling asleep. The more that you work on it and the more that you focus on it, the more impossible it becomes to actually be able to find it and to and to enjoy it. What we really need to do is we need to focus on others. We need to focus first on Christ, and then we focus on others. And I believe that as we do that, when we really do focus on our Lord Jesus and as we allow his life to fill us and to control us, then we kind of notice, kind of, Kind of like falling asleep. You kind of notice as I, at a glisten crusade, and I spend an entire weekend uh, immersed in sharing Christ with inmates. And I will find that I didn't even think about my own happiness uh, during the day. I was just engrossed in, in what I was trying to do for the cause of Christ. And yet, when I put my head on the pillow at the end of that day, I'm filled with such joy and such enthusiasm. Why? Because I got out of myself. I sacrificed myself. I tried to bring Christ to someone else. It can happen in a soup kitchen. You go down and and help to bring some chili, some hot chili to somebody or give them some good soup. Or you get out there and bring some clothes to people and you wake up and you find out, hey, I'm really happy. So let's follow the advice of the Apostle Paul today and let's stop worrying about how we feel and instead... Let's ask ourselves, how can I give myself to others?